the fact that I'm having dreams, I must have qualified as an old man. You know, it says in the old days, your old men will dream dreams, the young men will see visions. So I'm on your dreams now, so I'm obviously getting older. Um, but as I, as I had this dream and I woke up, there was something in me that was troubled. And I thought, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just let this marinate in the Lord. And as I spent some time with him, I, uh, I thought the Lord asked me to do a quick exercise, which I'm going to share with you this morning. So what I did is I went and had a look at what are the top 10 secular, which means for those of you who are not, in, who are not aware of church Christianese, secular is non-Christian, um, book titles out there for motivational speaking to give you a better life. You know, some of them I can't go through all of the names because I'd be surprised how people can actually swear in book names. But anyways, so number one is, and I want you to stay with me here. The number one bestseller is Think and Get Rich. Number two, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Number three, Man's Search for Meaning. Number four, The Alchemist. Number five, The Power of Positive Thinking. Number six, I will leave out one word. You are a how to stop doubting your greatness and start living an awesome life. Grit. Number seven, grit, the power of passion and perseverance. I'll skip the first part of this next book, but then it goes on to say a counterintuitive approach to living a good life. Number nine, you can heal your life. Number 10, how to win friends and influence people. Cool. So I think we can all see where we're going with it. But then, then I thought the Lord said, well, why don't you go and have a look at a couple of Christian authors and have a look at some of the stuff that you might be encountering at Kum Books and online and Amazon or whatever if you go and search for Christian material. And I pulled out five. And I want to say to you guys, I haven't read these books. So I am not endorsing these books. Please don't go out and buy these books. If you want to really seriously do it, let's have a chat. Um, one I do know of, I haven't read it, but I do know of it. It's called Number One, The Purpose Driven Life. Number two, The Christian Secret of a Happy Life. Number three, Finding Your Way to an Immensely Fruitful Life. Number four, The Search for Significance. Seeing your true worth, your true worth through God's eyes. And number five, the life you have always wanted. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read that, something in me grieved. You see, because all of those secular books are telling you about how to make your life better. And do I wish that you had a better life and that you were flourishing and, and fit? Absolutely, I do. But you see, the world doesn't have Jesus. They, he, he's not the focal point. He's not why we do what we do. He's not the one that we believe wakes us up in the morning to even have life, never mind abundant life, just to have any life. But you see, Christian books that are actually trying to train you how to have a more fruitful, more prosperous, more amazing life for you, it grieves me. You see, because... Jesus was very countercultural when he spoke to us, and he said, count it pure joy, my friend, when you encounter many trials and persecutions on my behalf. You see, now, I don't think that's going to sell many books. And this is not actually new. 
You see, we sometimes think that because we live in this very modern society with all of the wonderful transactions that are happening and all the new things that are going on, I mean, you can fly to the moon now if you've got enough money. But I want to take you all the way back, all the way back, to right in the beginning. And let's read together in Isaiah 14, verse 12 to 15. This is the prophet Isaiah that is prophesying into the future, but also looking back. And he says, How are you fallen from heaven? O day star, O son of the dawn. For those of you who don't know, he's talking about Satan. As Christians, believe, we believe there is a real God and there is a real enemy. And his name is Satan or Lucifer. And he was in heaven with God. And here it says, How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations know. So this being had real power and authority designated to him by God. He would have probably, if he was a man, been able to write numerous books that many of us would have wanted to buy because he's successful. And when we look at him, we'd go, well, if that's what success looks like, then I need to do what he does. So this is the, man, this is the same being we're talking about. Next verse, please. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God, and I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north, which is where the Lord sits, Last verse. Um, ah, I will ascend above the hearts of the cloud. And here's the kicker. I will make myself like the most high. I'm going to leave it there. So we see that the very enemy of our souls, the reason that he was cast out, the reason that he was he was forbidden from being in fellowship and in proximity and in the presence of the Lord was why? I will be better than God. I will be more than God. I will exalt myself above God. It was all about the evil trinity. Do you guys know who the evil trinity is? You know who the trinity is? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Do you know who the evil trinity is? Me, myself, and I. Many of you know it, so there's no excuse. But you know what's unfortunate is that much of that sinful nature has kind of infiltrated us as Christians. It's infiltrated the world, definitely. And what it, how it works itself out is that we find ourselves becoming discontent. It's never enough. We never have enough. We can never get enough. We'll never be clever enough. We'll never have enough wealth. We'll never be respected enough. We'll never have enough um, position. And what happens is we start to strive. And we start to make it about ourselves. And it's very interesting. I remember when I got saved, I come out of a, out of a sales background. So I was, was in sales for 22 years. And in sales, you're only as good as your last month. So you can smash the lights out and sell 20 bazillion gazillion rands worth of business last month. And this month, you start on a donut. You start on zero. And the company doesn't care what you did last month. They care what you do this month. And you don't care about what happened last month because you only get paid on the commission that you earned this month. So what happens is you start to live this life of performance. I also played sports. I was relatively good at most of the sports that I played. But when you're relatively good, you don't just want to stay relatively good. You want to become very good. So we start to strive and perform. Now what happened was the Lord in his mercy came and found me and my wife and saved us together in our home. 
I didn't come to a church like this. I wasn't at a rally or salvation. The Lord sent a willing messenger to our home to come and find us and to tell us about the love of God and the freedom that there was in him. And then from there, they said, well, now you need to go to church. You need to become part of a family. So I walked in, and I'll never forget, I walked in, and I looked around, and I kind of went, who's the top dog here? And I said, it's that guy over there. He's the lead elder. And in my heart, I was going, well, however long it took him, it'll take me half. I'm serious with you. I'm not joking. That was the intention, the ambition, the arrogance in my heart that I saw something that actually only gets designated and, and, and set into office by God. Something in me strived for and said, well, he gets seen, he gets the credits, he gets all the glory, I want to be like him. And it's corrupt. And that often finds its way into how we interact with people, how we interact in community, how we interact with church, how we even interact sometimes with our families. So for, last week we had, we had 412, and for those of you who don't know, 412 is just it's a, it's a, it's a partnership, of, partnership of churches from around the world. Andrew Selly, who leads Josh Chen, was also one of the, the lead apostles of that work. And the idea of it comes from Ephesians 4.12, to equip the saints, which is each and every one of you, for the work of the ministry, to give you the ability to actually walk in all that God's got for you. Because like I read earlier on, when we come together, let each of you bring a song or a hymn or a revelation or interpretation. And what he talked about there on the very first session, it blew my mind away. You see, there was 5,000 people there, and there was one entrance in. So as you can imagine, there was a line of cars trying to get into this venue. And Andrew obviously had underestimated how much time it was going to take. So he was sitting in line, but he needed to preach the opening preach, and time was starting to step on. So the guys are phoning him and going, hey, bro, listen, you need to preach. And he's like, but I'm standing in the line. And they're like, well, just go past. People will understand. And he's like, no. I don't want to go past because who am I that I should go past these people? They're in front of me. I'm gonna say. And he sat for another 45 minutes. He sat in there waiting for the rose to move forward. Finally, it was about 20 minutes before he had to preach. And finally, he had to now make his way around. And he came in. And he actually came up and apologized to everyone and said, I'm sorry, I didn't want to do that. But what he preached on is that there's actually, there's no celebrities in the church. You see, we love celebrity culture. We love pub culture in the world. We love it. If someone of reputation had to walk in here, the atmosphere would change. I don't know what your deal is for me at rugby. So if Sia Kulisi or Ibn Etzebet to one of the boys had to walk in here, I'd be like, I'm the pastor, how's it? Lekker, nice to meet you, shout through. Just come sit next to me in the front. And for you, it might be a surfer, it might be a business person, whatever it might be. But actually, with due respect to them, who are they? Who am I? Who's anybody? It's only Jesus he is the only one. And he actually, in that meeting, at the very first preach that we had, he called 5,000 people to repent if we have ever elevated someone to celebrity status and actually in our hearts to a certain degree worship them, whether it be a leader in the church, a politician, or a sports celebrity. You see, because there is only one that is worthy of our praise. 
Now, does that, am I saying that you must show no respect or honor to people that have got office and, and stature and have been given a position of authority? By all means, I'm not saying that. We are not a godless people. And the Bible is very clear in Romans 12, 9. I haven't given these three to you. It's Romans 12, verse 9. It says, be devoted to one another. Honor one another above yourselves. Honor is a good thing. Hebrews 13, 17. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to them as men who must give an account. Romans 13, verse 1 to 2. Be subject to the governing authorities. Now, I'm going to push the sore point here. Do you know who the governing authority is? In their days, it was Rome. In our days, it's a political party. In the U.S., it's the Republicans and the Democrats. And Jesus is speaking, and he says, or, sorry, the writer of Romans says, be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except what God has established. If we rebel against that authority, we are actually rebelling against God. If you don't believe me, I'll share the scriptures with you. It's in your Bible too. So I'm by no means saying that everybody is just, we need to respect and honor that which God has put in place. But by the same token, we don't worship them. They are not God. They are not worthy of your praise. They are not worthy of your, of your adoration, and they are not worthy of your worship. Is that okay? So I can hear some of you thinking, because and for us, we also want to improve our own lives, don't you? Like we want to we do well. Who doesn't want to do well here? Anybody? We want to do well. We want to live a, a healthy life. So maybe, you know, like me, you've got like an extra couple of winter pounds that, you know, your wife looks at every time you have a cupcake for my son's birthday, and she's like, only one, only one. Sister. <laughs> you know, they say, you know, summer bods are built in winter. Well, I'm a little bit late. I'm building mine for autumn. Um, <laughs> but we all want to do better, and we all want to have a certain amount of healthy ambition in our lives to get further. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I can hear some of you going, well, you know, those guys worked hard to get to where they are. And, you know, surely we should appreciate how hard they've worked. I mean, it must be really hard to be the one guy that gets picked to play for the Springboks or for the Proteas or the one guy that gets chosen to be the president of the country. It must be hard. There's millions of other people. So we appreciate what they do. And I do believe, I really, really do believe that God does want to entrust authority to Christians like you and me. That he can put into places of authority where we can have an influence and where we can shine his kingdom. But that's the means. It's not the end. He puts us there not to put us there so people can worship us. He puts us there so we can show people how to worship him. Once again, coming from a business background, I know, and I work, worked in some serious corporate-related industries, and there's some guys, I, I, I really respected these men. They were, they were wonderful, wonderful, good, strong businessmen. But I know some of them that spent eight years, eight years following to create, to, to, to learn and to study towards a PhD or an MBA while in still full-time employed. Do you know how much dedication that takes? Those guys would literally would go to bed at like 12, 1 o'clock. They'd wake up at 4 o'clock. They'd work. 
and then they they do their their thesis and all their studies, and then they would basically go to work, and then they'd repeat the cycle seven days a week. Absolute laser focus on their on their uh, achievements. But unfortunately, what would often happen is it would come at the expense of something. You see, because we're always saying yes to something and we're always saying no to something else. So while they were saying yes to getting this MBA, while they were saying yes to getting this this PhD, and these are good things to have. Did you know that if you go to the bank, you go to your bank, and you present the fact that you have got a PhD or an MBA, you'll actually get a better rate. You You will get better interest. You'll qualify for a specific card that's a specific color. It's different from everybody else's. Just because you've got a PhD, you've got three letters behind your name. And please, I'm not having a go that anyone has a PhD. Bless you for the hard work that you've done. You've done well. But the question that I ask you is, what is the cost? And is the cost worth it? Another one might be, like I said now, you've got Sia Kulisi or A.B. de Villiers or one of these guys that's now reached the top of their game. They're a Springbok, a Protea captain. They're gifted, they're talented, and your kid is just like that. Your little Nuni is the next Springbok captain. Hands down, there's no way it's going to be anybody else. And let me tell you, your time reflects that. If he's not at training, he's at coaching. If he's not at coaching, he's eating. If he's not eating, he's watching. If he's not watching, he's playing. And I see parents running from pillar to post, post to pillar, and back again to give their child every single opportunity to become that Springbok captain. Hallelujah. But I ask you once again, at what cost? You see, I know it's not like it for anybody here. I know you guys well. But I've seen many parents, many parents, who worship their kids. They don't worship God. So when community clashes with practice, oh, sorry, you know what? My kids actually got sport practice this morning. Not going to be able to make that. Sorry, God. Not me. Not your community leader. Sorry, God. Little Johnny is more important. On a Sunday morning, hey, this, you know, for the next six weeks of his life, hey, it's only six weeks, it's just this term, you know, we're not going to be a church, we're not going to actually worship God, because I need to worship my little son's opportunity to become the next Springbok captain. <laughs> Sorry, it's, it's okay, you guys are looking very serious, but I'm asking you seriously, what's the cost? You know, I heard, someone, I heard someone actually say this, and it's not mine, so I can't put my name to it, but I thought it was brilliant. And this is what it says. It says, parents, it's not your job to get your kids into Harvard. It's your job to get your kids into heaven. And I remember years ago, I heard that for the first time, and it actually stung me. And maybe for some of you, it's stinging you, and I'm sorry, I'm not trying to offend you. You see, Jesus is the rock of offense. I'm not called to be. I'm really sorry. I I don't want to offend you. But I need to call this out. Because you know what? One day when you stand before him, there will be no excuses. There will be no, oh, well, you know, Sean didn't tell me. We cannot live our lives centered around my desire to be better, 
my desire to be wealthier, my desire to, be, to have my kids come through all that they need to come through. What would it matter? In fact, in, the, in, in, in Matthew 20, 16, 20, 26, I want to I ask you, this is, this is Jesus looking ahead thousands and thousands and thousands of years to today and to this group of people, and he wrote this, or it was written, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? And what shall a man give in return for his life? Trevor, I wonder if you could just try and get that same one in the Amplified, if you don't mind. Hmm? We don't have Amplified. Okay, we don't have Amplified on there, which is generally quite good because we don't do exegesis using the Amplified. But if you do look at it, it says, what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And then it says in brackets, wealth, fortune, and fame. So what would it profit you or your child to gain wealth, profit, and fame and forfeit his life? Or shall a man give, what shall a man give in return for his life? You see, when you go back to the first opening scripture that I gave you, what did, what did Satan say? I will become like God. I will become the best version of me. And the struggle that you and I have is that that's what life is pushing at us. Look at those titles of those books. Be better, Shandra. Live a fruitful life, villain. You can do it, Charles. Be the best version of yourself that you can be. Get as much wealth as you can. Go to the best schools that you can. Do everything that you can. You, 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 you. But I don't believe that that is what we're called to as Bible-believing, born-again Christians. You see, we're called to Him. And the Bible says that actually this is going to become more and more common. So what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to inoculate us. I'm trying to give you the shot. And let's please not get into any vaccination conversations. That's not what I'm saying. But there is a real sense of what I'm trying to do is to show you ahead of time what's coming so that when it comes, you know that you're immune to this. Is that okay? So let's just read together in uh, 2 Timothy 3, verse 1 to 5. But understand this, that in the last days there will come a time of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And it ends us pretty strongly. Avoid those people. That lands hard, eh? That, it's not me. This is not my message. This is. That's, that, that's the word of God that's telling you that in our times, and we are in the last times, that's the kind of people that we're going to be around, but it doesn't encourage us to be those people. We need to look differently. It needs to be different amongst us. It must never be said of us. Never. Let no one in this congregation, let it ever be said of you that you fall into any of those categories. But rather, let it be said like this in 2 Timothy 3, verse 10 to 11. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. 
that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Hallelujah. Patience. Just go back one, please, Trev. My aim. He's talking about now. He's just come through all these persecutions. His conduct is life, faith, patience, love, steadfastness. Let those be the words that are used when they describe the people of God. When everyone else is running after the golden goose, let us be those that we've spoken of like that. Luke 22, verse 24 to 27. Again, another example of how this is not new. Guys, we don't need to like sit and go, oh, woe is me, we're the only generation. This is the disciples. These guys are walking, sleeping, eating next to Jesus, walking on the earth. They are literally, we talk about being in his presence this morning. They are literally sleeping next to him. They can smell his feet. That's how close they are. And it says that a dispute also arose amongst them as to which of them was regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and of those in authority call themselves benefactors. So he's saying, effectively what he's saying, he's saying, that's what the world looks like, guys. That's what the world does. He says, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest amongst you become the youngest or the least, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is greater? So now he's asking them, because he wants to just smuggle with their minds a little bit here. And he says, who's greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one that serves? And the answer we know, according to Jewish custom, is the one who's sitting at the table relaxing is greater than the one that's serving them, right? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? So Jesus answers him, says, yeah, you're right, it is. He says, but I, Jesus, I'm among you as one who serves. He takes the low road. He's not interested in being the best version of himself because he knows the best version of himself is nothing. He goes low. I read again the other day the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. When last have you read that and actually just let the Holy Spirit reveal to you what that actually must have looked like? Peter already has identified him correctly, or Simon has already identified him as the Son of God. And he said, yes, that's been revealed to you by, by the Spirit of God. That's not human wisdom. They know who's amongst them. And they're all, they come into this town, they get a room, there's no hosts. So usually in those times, a host would come and would make sure that there was water available. And if Rian and Esther come into my home, either I would have a servant or my wife or I would literally would wash their feet because they wore sandals and they walked in the dust all day, every day. So it was in amongst their toes, under their toenails. It wasn't glorious. It wasn't glorious. There was no foot spas and mani-pedis. It was filthy. It was gross. And Jesus sitting down and everyone's kind of just chilling out and doing their thing and he realizes, hold on, we haven't been, we haven't been cleansed. So he gets up and he puts a towel around his waist. And I can imagine the guys are just still chatting and they're carrying on with their stuff and he gets up and he goes and fetches a bowl of water. There's intentionality. He's thought about what he's doing. And he brings the water and he sits down and he starts to clean their feet. What? Where do you find that in Kumbuk's bestsellers? 
That's not in any motivational, hey, how to wash feet and influence people. <laughs> Jesus shows us by his humility. He comes down. He's literally on the floor washing their feet in love. And I can imagine these guys just going, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Do you know what's happening? And Peter refuses. He says, no, you can't do this to me. And Christ looks at him and sees in his heart because he feels he hasn't seen it, you see. It's not, it's not revealed in his heart yet. He hasn't seen that service is actually the way up. And he says, no. And Jesus says, well, unless you let me do this, you have no part in me. Unless you do as I do, unless you serve as I serve, unless you're humble as I'm humble, you have no part of me. This is not, this is so countercultural. It's not what you're hearing in your self-help books. It's not what you're hearing in the prosperity gospel that's saying, come to Jesus. He's like a little genie in a lamp. Rub the lamp and he'll come out and you say, what do I want? I'd like wealth and wisdom and health and... Yes, sir. Ma'am, thank you so much for the pleasure of giving your life to me. I am going to give you all your dreams and hopes. It's not the truth. That's not the gospel. I can't tell you that it is because it's deception, it's a lie, and I will not allow myself to stand in front of you and tell you that that is not the lie. That is a lie. He says, if you want to be where I am, you are, my servant is where I am. Where's Jesus? He's on the floor washing feet. He's not rich. He came into town on a donkey. What would I have done? If I'm honest. Maybe in Ferrari, Bentley, Aston Martin, something smooth, man. Have a little entourage, maybe make a little space. Jesus walks in. Imagine this picture. He comes in on the back of a donkey. The people are throwing palm trees at his feet. And because he's God, he knows that those same people that are worshipping today are going to crucify him tomorrow. <laughs> That's humility. He could have called down a legion of angels that and humankind was in its chops. We were done. You and I would not be here. And in his humility... Not trying to be the best Jesus that he can be, but in his true form of godliness, he sees that humility is what's needed here. And he walks through, knowing that tomorrow those same people that are going, you're amazing, you're great, worship you, redeemer of us, saving us from the world. And the next day they say, crucify him, and let the, that one that's actually guilty, let him go. Crucify him. That's humility. That's making it not about ourselves. Guys, we are the church of Jesus Christ. This is what we're called to. This is what we're called to. We're called to go low. When it comes time to forgive, why not forgive? We had a gentleman at the back that came and he said, you know, he felt like the Lord during worship was just touching on unforgiveness. Can I tell you what the root of unforgiveness is in your heart? I'm not trying to offend anybody. The root of unforgiveness is pride. I'm sorry to say it's the truth. If you don't believe me, go and look at your heart. But that person, you don't realize what that person did to me. You don't realize how that person said about me. You don't realize how that person treated me. And you're right, I probably don't. And, and for some of you in this room, horrible things may really have happened to you, and I am sorry. I am sorry if you've suffered anything at the hands of man. 
And I know that it might take some working through, and let's work through it. But unforgiveness is rooted in the fact that you can't let go of what was done to you. Jesus let go of what was done to him. And he calls us to be as he is. We have to get these things right. If we can't find forgiveness in our heart, how will we one day stand before him? And we trust him for forgiveness, but I can't forgive my neighbor. How am I doing for time now? Okay, thank you. The greatest expression of love and devotion that we can show as Christians in this world is actually the fruits of the Spirit. As we walk through our lives and these barbs get shot at us and the pain comes and it will come. We've been told persecutions and trials and tribulations, it's part of our deal, man. We sign up for it. It's going to happen. We're told, in fact, to rejoice in it. The greatest way that we can show that is when someone sins against you, you forgive them immediately and you walk on. When you don't get invited to that party that everyone else did, you don't get offended and close your heart off. You go, bless them. I'm going to carry on with my own life. When that godless, rebellious, deceitful co-worker of yours gets the promotion and you don't, bless them. Bless them. We're not, we are not the world. We are not called to be the world, and we're not called to act like the world. We are his. And I want to say to you, as I land, and I'm going to hand over to Rian, I want to tell you that God is not interested in your position, the three letters that you have behind your name. He's not interested in the springbok blazer that you wear. He's not interested in how educated you are or aren't. You see, because the opposite side of it is, well, I don't have all these things, so what use can I possibly be? Let me tell you, if you have a mustard seed worth of faith, if you have five loaves and two fish in the hands of the master, all things are possible. He wants us. He's not interested in those people, but he wants us to be sold out. Every part of me yours. Every part of me, Lord, is yours. The money in my bank, the car that I drive, the house that I stay in, the shoes on my feet, these are your things. I will steward them according to how you call me to do. And I will be like you and I will serve. I will be devoted. I will be humble. I will be a servant and a slave. The statistics of how many times Jesus says son in the New Testament versus how many times he speaks about servants and slaves, it's not even proportional to servants and slaves. That's another preach. I can't get into it. But if you don't believe me, go and check it out. Go to your concordance. We are his. We are those that are bought with a price. And we get the privilege to work for God, with God, to love Jesus, to serve Jesus, and to see his kingdom come. Amen.